Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right, so this week we got Teresa Torres joining us. Uh, Teresa just authored the book, uh, Continuous Discovery Habits, uh, discovery pro- discovering products that create customer value and business value. So it is a hell of a mouthful. It's a, and it's for those book. of you who are listening, <laughs> it's the book right behind her. So it's just that's right. And it, it's a great book. So this is kind of like a virtual book tour here. So let's uh, let's tell the audience about it. So I guess let's start, Teresa. Why? What was the outcome you were trying to get to when you wrote this book? Like, what what was your what was your deepest desire? I guess when you when you were trying to when you were writing this book. Yeah, I love that you asked about outcomes because that's what I teach to start with. And um, really the outcome that drives my whole business and um, really my life for the last 10 plus years, or arguably longer than that, is just to help teams um, find a more regular cadence of engaging with customers and building feedback loops into what they're building. And um, yeah, the book was really all about um, finding scale and, and, and getting these ideas into more people's hands. Um, so you talked about like six, six different mindsets, uh, with the start the book. Like that was one of the first things that people had. So it was, um, outcome oriented, customer centric, collaborative, visual, experimental, and then continuous. Um, as I was reading that, I was like, oh, those are really good ones. I can't really argue with any of those. Um, but how did you like narrow that down? Cause like one that I might've added was like rapid learning cycles or feedback loops or something along those lines. I don't know if that yeah, was like in so, your thought process. Um, I would say rapid, um, learning cycles or feedback loops. I would say f- kind of cross both experimental and continuous. So okay. I think there's a lot of ways to get at the exact same ideas, but I was just trying to look at like, so many people think about this as, oh, I just need to learn the right skills. But I'm sure you've seen this. There's a lot of teams that, you know, they can run an A-B test, but mm-hmm. they don't really know how to set up a good test. They don't really know how to interpret the results. They don't necessarily have the mindset to throw away a bad idea, right? Like there's a little bit more than just the tactics. There's also how do we build rigor around this and how do we adopt the mindsets that make that easier? So I got a question towards that. And this this was interesting because it was a, a real world uh, example that just happened to me not too long ago. So um, on our site, we were trying to introduce uh, a, a, essentially a, tra- a chat bot. So I, I kind of oversee the support area of the organization. Mm-hmm. So anytime there's a customer pain point, they got to reach out to us like, that's kind of my my lane of visibility there. And so we're, we're putting the, the chat bot out there. And up until this point, you either called us or you submitted a ticket, right? So we're creating a new channel mechanism to, to communicate with our customers. And one of the uh, one of the leadership team members came to me and he said, well, are you running this as an experiment? And in my head, and I, I'm just trying to be brutally honest here, I'm like, well, how do you run an experiment against something that didn't exist previously? Right. Like when we put a new channel out for our customers, you could say like our experiment is, well, we want to see if customers are going to engage with it. But that sounds like a weak ass experiment to me. Right. Um, and but then back to, to the core of my question, like we didn't have it there to begin with. So how would you like how would you help me? And I'm going to get some free coaching here. But like, wh- wh- you know, wh- 
how do you start that conversation? How do you frame that opportunity that you want to be going after there when you don't have any, when you're running that AB test, but you don't have a B? Yeah, this is a really good question. So first of all, in the book, I talk about an experimental mindset. It easily could have been a scientific mindset. I actually think both of those terms are really problematic in the work that we're doing because I don't think we're running experiments or being scientists, but there's elements to that mindset that are really important, which is around having a rigorous process, having a, um, uh, intellectual um, honesty and curiosity about results and being uh, motivated by finding the right answer more than being right ourselves. Um, so that's the first thing. So I would say you shouldn't be looking for an experiment to run. Like I think that language has become really problematic in our industry because it leads people towards large scale quantitative tests. Because when we think experiment, we think randomized, controlled, double blind study. And that's, we don't have to do that as product teams. Like why do we do randomized controlled double blind studies? We do them for two reasons. We either are trying to save people's lives and we're trying to prevent harm in the medical world or we're trying to create new knowledge. Thankfully, as product people, our stakes are not that high on either side, right? So in the book, I use the language assumption tests. And I did that for a couple reasons. In fact, Marty and I got into a little back and forth about this because in his, Marty Kagan, because in his book, he uses prototypes. And I really loved that he used that language because I do want to see more teams like prototyping over these large scale quantitative experiments. But prototypes are only one type of assumption test. And what I also like about the language assumption test is it's reminding us to test an assumption and not the whole idea. So your question about like, how do I test this idea of a chatbot? Testing that idea is hard. You're gonna build the idea and see what happens, which really isn't a very good test because you just did all the work before you found out if you needed it. So I would say the thing to do is to break it down into its underlying assumptions. Like what are you assuming um, needs to be true for that solution to be successful? And then we could look at how do you test specific assumptions? And that tends to be faster, um, mm -hmm. which and, and it, and a lot of people, kind... yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say like, and you kind of got to think about like, what type of assumption do you want to do? Like, I was just thinking about Jeff's idea, like usable. We probably don't need to test as a chatbot usable. Like chatbots are everywhere, right? Like that's, people are used to chatbots. So maybe we don't need to test that, any assumptions around that, but. Do people want it in a financial app? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe we should test that desirability. And could that be a button of nowhere? Could it just be like, here's a chatbot. See if people click it and say, this is coming in the future. That might be an example, right? Like that could be one way to like test some type of assumption with a bot. If yeah, you think that's so, what you do. Yeah, we could do a, a sort of fake door, smoke screen, whatever you want to call that type of test. Mm -hmm. Just basically simple demand test. Does anybody click on it? Um, other things I would think about testing with the chatbot really is around feasibility. What are people going to ask this chatbot? Can we respond to that? Is it going to work? Mm -hmm. Are they going to leave frustrated and unhappy? Are we literally just going to every single time say, oh, call us, which I see a lot of chatbots do, which was, what was the point? I could have just called you from the beginning. Um, so I think there's a lot to explore there that have nothing to do with building the idea. Quick break. We know you can't support all shows, but when you do support a show, think of the Agile Wire when you subscribe and share. Awesome. Thank you. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I remember the page or the, the page, I, obviously I can't regurgitate it all, but like, I liked the distinction that you deliberately put in that book around scientists and that like what the way you articulate it was like, they're working on large data that typically takes a few years to quantify. And, and like, we, I, nobody got time for that in yeah. product, right? Like, 
<laughs> like we're, we're and we actually talked about this at I think it was Milwaukee Spin, but like that mythical six month project, which like inevitably is more like a two year project once it actually happens, right? Like we we don't have time for that level of commitment there. So um, it was definitely in line with it. One of the other things though that I wanted to mention, and Jeff was talking about Julie Everett earlier, and I find it really interesting because she was one of the first guests that we had on the podcast. So this was like two years ago. And, and I bring that up because at the time she's like, you got to find Teresa, you got to follow her. Uh, where was it? The, the opportunity solution tree. Uh, and she actually introduced that to us because she was going to go on and actually do a talk about that, uh, because you had, were a proponent of, or came up with it. And, um, she did this little activity with Jeff and I about it. It was really eye-opening. And that that has actually stuck with me now for two years. Um, and I still use it to this day. Really just like when somebody comes to me and asks me for something, I'm like, great, what is that going to do for you? What is that going to give you? Like that's one of the first questions that I ask people that are coming to me with these asks to get them to kind of thinking that higher level, okay, this is what I'm actually going, I want. This is just the way that I'm looking to achieve that want, right? Or that yeah. opportunity as, as you would phrase it. Um, so one, I'm just super excited about that, that, you know, um, I I got to learn that and have applied it, but I was really interested in like how that was almost kind of foundational to so much of what you were talking about in the book. Like you, you kind of came up with this idea and then it was, we're just building on top of it. So I, I might, and I'll finally get to my question here. Like, how did that eventually, you know, come about? Like you kind of started with the the OST and then moved on to like, wow, this whole kind of, I don't want to say framework, but you know, I was able to build a whole book around these concepts. Yeah. So how did this come about? So, I had been coaching for several years, just teaching teams. I don't know that I had, I don't remember. I I came across, Marty started using discovery and delivery. And I remember when I read that, I was like, oh, that's what I do. I work on the discovery side. Like, I don't really want to help you write user stories or increase your velocity or not that interested in that side of things. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It's just not where I play. Like, I'm much more interested in how do I get you in front of customers? How do we test your assumptions? How we do? How do we do it in a way that's fast and rigorous, both, right? And so I've been working with teams, coaching them on just how to do that. And it wasn't very structured. It was just sort of imagine exactly what you might imagine in a coaching session. A team would come with, here's what we're trying to do. And we'd kind of workshop it and iterate. And then next week, we'd pick up where we left off. Uh, and what happened was I was working with a team who expressed, they said something like, Teresa, you've taught us a lot of amazing tactics, but we don't know what to do when. Hmm. Um, And so we're worried that after coaching, we're not gonna know how to do this on our own. And that really landed with me, because I don't, I'm a coach over a consultant, because I'm not trying to um, create dependencies, I really wanna leave a team better off. And um, that really became an opportunity that I became obsessed with, which is, um, it's just simply phrased, in discovery, I don't know what to do when. And um, I, this is something that I encountered even as a product manager working with my own teams is that I always had so much internal in my head that I felt like I had this structure that I was using to kind of um, explore and iterate and experiment. But my teammates didn't always share that structure. So like you've probably had this experience where you run an experiment, you learn something that was unexpected, you got to iterate on your solution. And like someone throws out an idea and you're like, wait, we don't, you just threw the baby out with the bathwater. Like that part of the solution wasn't broken. It was this other part, right? And so I'd already been struggling with like, how, 
What is the structure I have in my head that's helping me manage the messiness of the work? And I'd already been trying to like codify that or externalize that. And it was genuinely hard. But when this team said to me, we don't know what to do when, it really was a catalyst for me to sit down and say, okay, I have to figure out how to get what's in my head onto paper. And I am just by nature a really structured thinker. And the output of that exercise was the first version of the opportunity solution tree. And then that kind of became the heart of the rest of my coaching because it was already intuitively what I was doing in my head. I just wasn't externalizing it for my teams. And so while, yes, the whole book is sort of built around that idea, um, it's partly because that was already the internal mental model I was using as I sort of developed all the other tactics and frameworks and, and tools. Um, and it, I was really lucky, like at the time that that team had said that to me, I was reading Peak by Anders Ericsson, who studies expertise and like what differentiates experts from novices. And one of the things he talks about is that experts have more sophisticated mental representations of the problem. And that was what I needed to like get me over the hump of like, what's the mental representation that I'm using to manage this messy work? And it turned out the answer was an opportunity solution tree. Can you talk a little bit about like how you use like um, a user story map and then how that populates your opportunity tree? Because I thought that was really cool because I'd never seen that before reading your book. And I was like, oh, that's a really good way to integrate two things at once that people are already doing. Yeah. So let's so the opportunity solution tree is just how do we reach our outcome? Right. So it's a it's a decision tree structure. It has your outcome at the top. You're interviewing to discover opportunities. So opportunities are customer needs, pain points, and desires. That's sort of our understanding of the problem space. We're just trying to be more inclusive. Some products don't solve problems. Um, and then when you're evaluating solutions, you're um, running assumption tests to evaluate those solutions. So where do story maps fit in that? The idea with story maps is a lot of product teams struggle to agree on what tests to run because they don't yet agree on what the solution is. That's the first thing. And so we're working with these really vague ideas, which means if I have a slightly different notion of what an idea is um, from you, Jeff, we might be making different assumptions. So we can't even agree on which assumption to test because we're not making the same assumptions. So where story mapping is really valuable is it helps you as a team visually align around what do we actually mean by this solution? And it just so happens that that same activity is really good for helping us see our own assumptions because story mapping makes us make assumptions. And then we can use that exact same visual to help us then surface assumptions. And then that's what drives that iterative assumption testing. Is there a point of diminishing returns for experimentation? And the reason I ask that is um, when things are winding up in my backlog on my list of work. I I and the team are conscious of like, we really don't want anything to be more than a few days of effort in size before we can get something out the door in front of a customer, validate that we're going the right direction with things. And um, with, with a lot of product managers that I've worked with in the past, you know, the, the experimentation makes sense when we're launching a new product, right? Like when we're about to go in and really like a year's worth of effort, maybe a hundred engineers or a hundred team members are all collaborate, collaborating on this thing. But ours is more almost like KTLO type of work. Um, 
I, we're hearing direct customer pain points of the issues that they're running into. Um, and again, we're just trying to do quick things to get out the door. And so where I'm trying to think about is like, the experimentation may take just as long as just building the damn thing and getting it out there. Um, but that's also, maybe I'm just being biased and I'm being lazy, right? So I, I was just kind of curious for your thoughts on, um, you know, is there a point of diminishing returns here? Does it make sense for just larger things? What about the smaller things that are on your backlog or the smaller types of feature requests that we're getting out the door? Yeah, so a good rule of thumb is if the discovery is going to take longer than building it, you can just build it. However, there's a major problem with that rule of thumb. If you build 30 things in 30 days and all of them fail, you probably should have done some discovery, right? So there's a little bit of this balance. I look at discovery as it's like putting money in the bank. It compounds over time. So when you test an idea, you're not just learning about that idea, especially if you're doing the work to actually test assumptions. You're learning about your customer. You're learning about your opportunity space. You're learning about how to reach your outcome. And all of that is going to compound over time. It means your next solutions are going to be even better. It means that you're going to know the next problem to go after. So even if you have a ton of low-hanging fruit to go after, and you really could build all of it faster than it would take to do discovery, I would still pair it with some discovery because odds are a good percentage of that low-hanging fruit still isn't going to get used, still isn't going to be the best way to solve the problem you're hearing about. So there's a little bit of both. So I think what I would say is that if you are running a continuous discovery process, meaning you are interviewing customers every week and you are assumption testing every week, it's perfectly fine to have some things in your backlog that are too small to do discovery on because you're not gonna strike out often on those small things because you've laid the foundation for making a good judgment. If you have no discovery and everything in your backlog is small, I would still do discovery because again, you're gonna run the risk of building a whole bunch of the small wrong things. Yeah, like the riskiest things, right? Like you should start with those first and then the things that aren't very risky, well, then you take your take your chance of maybe just doing it if it's that small. But I guess that's what the rule of thumb that I've used at sometimes. You know? Yeah, again, know. Though, on that? it has kind of the same challenge, right? So I can, if I'm not doing any discovery, I haven't tuned my judgment for what's risky. So it's really easy. Like, like Jeff said this, we have customers asking for things. They're telling us their pain points. That's going to all feel really low risk. But how many times do customers ask for something that they never use? All the time, yep. right? And so I think there's a balance. If your discovery is at zero, no matter how easy your backlog looks or how obvious your backlog looks, I would try to get to greater than zero. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. experienced teams will find the right balance. I do things all the time without discovery and I'm continuously discovering, right? And that works really well. Yeah. And the, the thing that I would want to clarify inside of there um, is like the type of research that we're doing or the feedback that we're getting, it's not as a customer, I want X feature. It's as a customer, you build me after I canceled. And that sucks. You shouldn't yeah. do that. Right? Like, yep. So that's that's the problem or the pain points that we're getting at. And then it's up to us internally to, okay, we, we've the objective, stop billing customers after they cancel, right? Like relieve that pain point for them. Yep. How we do that, we, we figure that out. So I just want to make sure it's not necessarily that they're asking us for a specific feature. They're really just telling us where it hurts, right? Like, all right, yeah. here's a picture. Where does it hurt here? And like they're pointing to the billing, right? Yeah. So, Yeah, and that's almost what you're getting at is almost a bug, right? Like we shouldn't, we all know we shouldn't invoice or bill customers after they're done. Um, and bugs are a really interesting problem space, I think, because 
I've been on teams where they don't even want to track bugs and they take the view of if the bug is painful enough, we'll hear about it enough, we'll just deal with it. And I've been on teams that are really meticulous about tracking every single bug they've ever heard. Um, and there's thousands of bugs in the bug database and they do these horrible weekly reviews of every bug and they triage it. And Reality is probably somewhere in between. Um, but I actually think discovery is really critical for bugs. Because no matter how good of a product you build, there's always going to be edge cases. There's always going to be bugs. And bugs are a little bit like UX. We could spend the rest of our lives solving bugs or trying to improve our user interface. Mm -hmm. And neither necessarily means we're creating customer value. And so that's where we have to be really careful. But like a lot of things, even discovery, a little bit of all the time is probably a good way, rule of thumb, yep. right? Like if you if you don't... If you don't do a little bit all the time, then all of a sudden we're going to need to do this whole bug phase where we clean up all these bugs or something. Yep. You know, it's going to be totally unstable. So if we do just a little bit of everything all the time, you know, we have a nice balance in our lives or in our yep. products. Yeah. So can we can we talk about the Trinity for just a moment? Um, and I, I hope, Jeff, that you're laughing because I felt like I had just battle wounds, right? Uh, whenever somebody brings up the Trinity, I just have a knee-jerk reaction to it. But I was really happy that like you took the time to say, hey, this, again, I, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but this is what I mean by Trinity. But for you, it might be the Quadro or the Hex or whatever, yeah. right? Like it's getting the right people into the room. And where where I've run into issues with it in the past and why I have such a knee-jerk reaction is because that wasn't the mentality. It was, you need to have the product manager, the designer, and the engineering uh, lead in the room, and that's how we make all the decisions, right? Um, and then everybody else is just a second-class citizen. Uh, but I think you did a really good job of highlighting is, no, 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 it's the right people at the table to make these educated decisions uh, about things. And that that really kind of hit home for me. But I was curious, Jeff, did you have that same reaction at all when you were reading it? Yeah, I mean, the first time I always see, I mean, some of the ideas when I'm like, a Trinity, ugh, come on, like, where's our scrum team here? You know, we're both scrum trainers, we're totally biased. So, um, so yeah, I had the same thought. But then when you explained it, I was like, yep, I get it, you know, and maybe not everybody, <laughs> I like the way you explained it, wants to do the discovery and wants to be that close to your customers. And if that's your case, maybe you're okay with that. Um, and then you have some people that are going to say, I'm going to step up and I want to be more involved in that. And that's okay too. So, <laughs> so first of all, I'm laughing at the term Trinity. I think I use, I use trio in the book, but what I like about Trinity is it sounds so sacred. And I actually think that's what we're trying not to do, right? This is not a sacred concept. Um, in fact, it was really funny. There's a lot of labels for this. Some people call it the Trin the Holy Trinity, right? We get the three-legged stool. We get the three amigos. Some people use triads, which I don't know why we have to introduce this new complex term that we don't use in everyday life. Um, so I just call it a trio. But um, I really think what's important here is not the dogma around it. And that's one of my goals in writing this book was to start to communicate, like, there are lots of ways at getting at the same thing. We don't need dogma. We need core principles. And I think the core principle behind a trio is this simple. We're trading off speed of decision-making with quality of decision-making. The more people involved in a decision, the slower you're going to go. However, the more relevant, keyword being relevant, cross-functional roles represented, the better decision you're going to make. And in an ideal world, like our businesses would give us time to explore and we could have the whole team involved in discovery and there'd be time to do both talking to customers and writing code and doing great design 
but we don't live in that world. Like we live in a world where we're tasked with way more than we can possibly accomplish. And the reality is we're going to have to divide and conquer sometimes. And I think the idea of the trio is when we divide and conquer, let's make sure the right cross-functional roles are represented when we're making an important decision. And then, but there's a, there's a caveat to that. We also need to make sure everybody else on the team is aware of the context and the reasoning behind that decision. So some people interpret it as like, oh, we have a discovery team and they're going to hand off to the delivery team. And now we're back at waterfall. So it's not that either, right? Like every engineer on the team needs firsthand exposure to the customer. They're just not going to be involved in every decision and every customer conversation. And they probably don't want to be in every conversation, yeah, exactly. every decision, you know, so it works out. But I think that's when I first heard it about it. I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I like this. And then as you explain it this way, it's like, Oh yeah, that makes total, total sense. Like we do need to divide and conquer at times. Um, and we need to make sure that we have a cross-functional like team that's looking at this problem from different aspects. Cause it's really about, I mean, we have merit and people that really understand research and the users. We have people that understand the product and the business side of it and the strategy. And then we need people that understand the technical side of it. And is it even feasible? Can we do these types of things? What other constraints do we have in our way? So if you don't have those areas represented, you're probably going to be missing something or you're going to run into some problem or you're going to think you don't, you're not even going to be aware of a certain assumption you're making. Right. So at least, that's what I got out of having that trio of people or skills. And it could be a trio, could be two, could be four, could be five, could be whatever it takes probably to get those skills right in the right room to make to make those decisions and and kind of do that discovery work. Yeah, I mean, um, in my full-time employee experience, I often worked at early stage startups. At two of them, I was the product manager, the designer, and the front-end engineer. So I was a trio of one, right? That's not, that's not ideal. Yeah. That's life no. in a startup, right? You do what you can. The key is really what we're trying to avoid. And um, I really love the CEO of Twilio wrote a book about this called Ask Your Developer. It's really this idea of like, we tend to leave engineers out of the decisions about what to build, which is insanity, right? Like our engineers have the most knowledge about what's possible. So, and so then some people hear that and they go, oh, okay, I need to invite my engineers when it's time to start creating solutions. But even that is too late because an engineer is gonna hear different things in an interview because we're all filtering what we hear based on our past knowledge and experience. And we all do this and we don't, we're not even conscious of it. If I'm a product manager and I have no engineering skills, and so my level of understanding of what's possible is limited based on my exposure to what I've, been, what I've been exposed to in the past, there's gonna be problems I hear in that interview that I dismiss as impossible to solve. And I'm not even gonna be aware of it. It's just the way the filter in my brain is working. Whereas the engineer in the room We'll hear that exact same problem and start thinking about, oh, well, there's this new API I learned about and we can combine it with this other thing over here and we actually could solve that. And we completely miss out on that when we let the product manager select the problems, write the requirements and hand them off to engineers because now we're not solving the best problems and we're certainly not solving them in the best way. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would say to watch out for, because I don't know that a lot of people are trained on this or have a lot of experience. And there's a lot of teams that are really focused on outputs. And so they they have this tendency and this mindset 
where it's like, I heard a customer say this. I heard somebody, a stakeholder say this. So we're just going to do what they said. Yep. And not really, and they don't, they don't ask the questions the way you frame them up in there to be like, tell me a story about what, what it looked like last time you did, you tried to solve this problem or the last time you had this problem. There's like, they ask them like, how would you want to fix it? What would be your yeah. ideal situation? And then they try to build this thing based off of what people say. And then they turn out, they don't use it that way, you know? Uh, because they can't they can't connect those dots in their head, the stakeholders or the users. So this I think that's the rigor. To learn. This is the rigor piece. Like I wish it was as simple as just go talk to your customers. And if you're not talking to your customers at all, it is that simple. You will learn an infinite amount by just talking to your customers. But once you have that under your belt, now we have to start to think about reliability and the validity of what we're hearing. And we need to add a little bit of rigor to our methods. And that just requires, I mean, you can either geek out on this and like learn all about cognitive biases and research methods, but you don't really have to. In the product realm, it's really simple. Spend your interviews grounded in specific stories about the past. That will dramatically increase the reliability and the validity. It's a really easy thing to teach. It does take a little bit of practice because again, your participant's gonna wanna generalize. You're gonna wanna generalize. It's gonna feel like a shortcut, but you're throwing reliability out the window. Um, so there is with all of these, with like all of the habits in the book, there is a little bit of effort we have to put in. That's the rigor part of this to make sure that we're the feedback loop is valid, is we're getting good feedback and not just noise. Mm -hmm. So if you're a team right there, in, let's just say, let's say, say maybe you are talking to customers and we've got that step, but you maybe you're not doing it as frequently as we would like, right? Like we should at least every week, I, you know, Marty says like what 15 to 20 different experiments or assumptions you should be testing, you know, every single week. And I can tell you from my experience, I don't, I've, I don't know. It's very rare to see that a number uh, that a team's doing, but that'd be great if you could. Um, and, and maybe that's just the rigor that some of the teams just don't have. Um, but why, why do you think it's so hard for these teams to like take that next step? Like what's the thing that's holding them back? I don't know. Like, why, yeah. why not ask these questions? You know, what, what's, what's stopping them? So first, let's talk about this 15 to 20, because I included that quote in my book. And what Marty says is he says the best teams are doing 15 to 20 discovery iterations every week. And he defines a discovery iteration as anything you're doing to learn about an idea. Okay, that's pretty broad. And I will share, like when we talk about formalizing assumption tests, like actually taking the time to surface assumptions and then run an assumption test, I see most teams that I work with doing like half a dozen a week. They're not at the 12 to 15. I think if we were to talk to Marty about this, my guess is he's counting a lot more than just those formal tests. He's counting that interview you're having with the customer where you just get some qualitative feedback. He's counting that conversation you have with a stakeholder where you're getting some um, feedback on the viability within your own organization. Then that number becomes a lot more practical, right? We do have a lot of court conversations mm -hmm. over the course of the week with different people. Um, but even so, like, let's just take half a dozen and we're talking about a little bit more rigorous assumption testing. I think there's a lot of reasons why teams don't do this. First of all, it's really hard to see our own assumptions. So assumption testing, it's, Eric Reese wrote about this in the Lean Startup, which by the way, came out 10 years ago. That's kind of mind blowing to me. And Eric Reese didn't invent this. There were lots of people assumption testing before that book came out. And it's still not common practice. Why? It's really hard to see our own assumptions. I dedicated a whole chapter to this with three or four different ways to go about this. Because in my experience coaching with teams, 
I would say, okay, don't test your idea, test your assumptions. And I'd get back a whole bunch of blank stares. Like people, we just don't know what that means. We haven't put the how behind it. Um, I hope that I'm starting to fill in that gap. Like I know um, teams are already story mapping. They didn't know their story maps could help them generate assumptions. I hear from people all the time, that's a game changer. Um, I know pre-mortems are becoming more common. Um, so we're getting better at that piece of it. And then on the testing those assumptions side, it does take a little bit of infrastructure setup to be able to test assumptions quickly. And I'm glad to see the rise of things like product ops and design ops, because we're getting teams that are focused on how do we make it dead simple for product teams to run rapid assumption tests. Um, and so there is a little bit of sort of investment we have to make to unlock this continuous cadence. So you've you've mentioned a few books now, and I'm, and I'm kind of curious, like, wh where did you learn? Like, where 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 were the sources of knowledge that you grasped onto as you were uh, going through your product management career? Yeah, so I'll say I was really lucky in that as an undergraduate, I was introduced to human-centered design. So I did a design program at Stanford um, that predated the D school, but same fundamental curriculum. Um, and I kind of en entered the business world naive, thinking that's just how the world worked, is that people listen to their customers and they built products for them. Um, and then I worked at a series of startups where nobody was talking to customers and I felt like a fish out of water. Um, and some of it is that I'm just really stubborn. So I just brute forced it. I was like, okay, well, you don't have to talk to customers, but I'm going to. Um, and then I'm also a really voracious reader. So I've read probably 90% of the product books out there. But I also try to not just read within product. I also try to read um, a lot around decision making and critical thinking and problem solving. And a lot of the references in the book are not other product books. It's really drawing from those sort of more foundational resources like product management and digital products is a fairly new world. Problem solving, critical thinking, um, decision making, those are not new worlds. We have a lot of research. We have a lot of best practices that we can pull from. Um, and so I try to also read uh, really deep in those areas as well. So before you jumped on, I was talking with Boobles about, uh, I, I just started up a book club at at my work. And I, since I was leading it, I got to pick the book, right? And the the one book that is probably the, the most influential for me was uh, Four Disciplines of Execution. Um, mm. Just uh, if you're not already familiar with it, it's very similar to OKRs, talks about the WIG, the wildly important goal, um, establishing leading and lag lagging metrics, establishing the coaching score scoreboard versus the player's scorecard. Um, and it Again, it was probably the most influential to me as far as not just thinking about outcomes, but there were so many great concepts from that book that I that I took and introduced to myself. Is there one book that kind of stands out for you? Like if you had, obviously, other than your own, uh, but, you know, if there was one book that you would really recommend for maybe a, a novice product manager, maybe even a senior product manager. Um, like this is my one go to that I recommend to students or, or people that I'm coaching. Yeah, so probably the, bo the book, well, there's a few resources that have been really influential to me, all of which are footnoted in my book. The one book I would recommend that other people read of that set is Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. Mm -hmm. So Chip and Dan Heath are an amazing author pair because I believe one of them is an academic and the other is in industry as a business person. And so that combination is really powerful because they have the evidence-based sort of academic lens 
but they also write in a way that works for a business audience. So it's easy to read, it's engaging, and it's a really great summary of what we know about decision-making and where we go astray. Um, and discovery is making decisions about what to build. So it's 100% applicable. So as far as a recommendation for other people to read, that's my number one. Um, I draw from a lot of other sources though, like I'm really influenced by John Dewey's How We Think. Um, he was a philosopher that really looked at critical thinking. I can't say I recommend other people read it. It's a really hard, difficult read. It's like 150 pages. It took me 15 hours to work through it. Um, but it is some of the best reading I've encountered around what it means to be a good critical thinker. Um, and then Carl Weck is an educational psychologist at the University of Michigan. And he wrote this paper that uh, I think is so critical for product people, which is he defines wisdom as balancing confidence in with you, what you know so that you can act with doubting what you know so that you stay open to being wrong. Um, and that captures so beautifully this mindset of like, we have to ship a product, we have to keep moving, and we really need to stay open till we might be on the wrong path. Yeah, so many teams have backlogs that have things from years and years ago and there's these monster lists, right? Well, how do you know you need to do any of that? Yeah. How do we know that these actually solve the problems that we want? Are these even relevant anymore, right? Like having that openness to have an emergent list as you're trying to figure out what solution you should be working on or what opportunity you should be focusing on. Like, I think that's a, that's a different mindset that not a lot of teams have, you know? Yeah, I, know what your thoughts on that. I really think like one of the silver linings of COVID is that the whole world just got a really big dose of what it really means to have an uncertain future, right? And look at all these all these companies that started the year in January 2020 with a 12-month roadmap. I'm going to guess that by March they had to throw that roadmap away, right? Mm -hmm. And I know like I know a lot of companies in those first few months of us of everybody staying home, it was a crisis, right? I know companies that saw huge revenue hits and had to dramatically change things. Or on the other side, like Zoom, they saw huge growth and had to respond rapidly to that growth. It was really uncomfortable. And hopefully, one of the lessons we take away from it is that we have to be prepared for events like that. And like, yeah, a global pandemic might be a, let's hope to God it's a black swan and that we're not going to face that regularly. But there's other smaller events that have big impact, like new technologies disrupting what's possible or new competitors entering the market. Um, so my hope is it helped us all get a little bit more comfortable with what it really means to be adaptable. I feel kind of kind of bad, but it, at the beginning part of the year, I was still doing coaching and training as, as a full-time gig. And exactly to what you just said, like I'd, I'd ask the students the questions like, hey, how many of you in the past month or two threw away your 2020 roadmaps or 2021? I can't remember exactly when it was. Everything blurs together now. Um but, you know, like most of, most of the, the, the students would raise their hand. I'm like, all right, so for those of you who didn't raise your hand, like, does that make you feel good that there's a global pandemic and you're just all systems go? We figured out all the right things that we got to be building this year. Like, does, does that seem to make sense to you? Uh, and you can kind of see the light bulbs turning on in some of these conversations where it's just like, oh, I understand it now. So to totally in line with what you're saying. Uh, Jeff, did you have something though that you were? Yeah, I guess I was just going to say, like, you know, a lot of stakeholder conversations are really aligned around outputs, which is what we're seeing our roadmaps, right? And our users and, and things like that. And so that's what people are talking about and they're, and they're planning for. 
I mean, if you ha- I guess a nudge out there to anyone who's listening, it's like if you haven't had a conversation about outcomes and different opportunities that could solve that outcome, like maybe this is a time to start introducing that to your stakeholders. You know, like there's if you don't have to do it all right away, but like at least start that conversation. Right. Like, let's start talking about, you know, why? I mean, your backlog's huge. Why would we choose one thing over the other? You don't have to do it all. Why? What are what's the most important opportunity to be going after? And then, like, we should be talking to real customers. I think those would be like if you, two major things. Like, you talked about those keystone habits at the end of your book, where it's like, if you're not talking to customers and if you're not talking about outputs with your stakeholders, those would be the two. I don't know. I, I added the second one uh, that I would say, like, you should be doing that. You know, I don't know. What are your yeah, thoughts? I'll share my experience from 2020. So, I entered 2020 knowing I was going to write my book. Um, I was still driven by the outcome I've been driven by for a long time, which is, how do we increase um, the number of teams that are adopting a continuous cadence to their discovery? I don't know how to measure that outcome, by the way, but I'm okay with that. And um, uh, so I started 2020 thinking two things. I was going to continue to coach. Um, I work with, at that time, I was coaching teams at companies where the head of product brought me in to work with their teams. I had a 12-week coaching program, and I worked with sets of 10 teams at a time. So three times, I worked with 30 teams in a year, 10 in three different terms. So I ended the year thinking I'm going to write my book and I'm going to coach my 30 teams. And I had this little course business on the side that was just fun to experiment with testing content. Um, and I, that, that was going to be my year. And then March happened. And uh, what happened in March, I was in the middle of a coaching term. Thankfully, that coaching term was not impacted. So my immediate revenue was fine. But every single company that I had booked for my summer term canceled. Every single one of them, I got an email that said, um, we're not really sure how we're responding to the pandemic, how it's going to affect our revenue. Uh, We're putting a kibosh on all spending. Okay, great. So it's March 2020, and I'm seeing the writing on the wall. My immediate revenue needs are taken care of because I'm in the middle of a term. People are under contract. Nobody reneged, thankfully. But I can see two months out, I'm literally going to zero. The other thing that happened was I saw the demand for my little side course business grow exponentially overnight. And it was because as companies started working from home, they were looking for ways to keep their teams engaged and to still invest in training in a virtual way. And suddenly online courses became way more compelling. Okay, I didn't stubbornly stick to my roadmap of I'm gonna coach my 30 teams and I'm gonna hustle to find 10 more teams. I didn't do that. I said, okay, the market's not there for coaching. The opportunity I've been working on, which is I'm ahead of product, help me train my teams. It's no longer the right time to work on that opportunity. I'm gonna shift to this other opportunity. I'm a leader, I wanna engage my teams while they're at home, give me solutions for that. And we doubled down on our course business. We launched two courses and two other online programs in that two month period. And we uh, tripled to quadrupled our course revenue over the rest of the year. Now that, and then and then coaching came back by fall, so it turned out to be a great year. Um, but it was because we weren't stubborn in the how. We were stubborn in the outcome. The outcome was how do we get as many teams working this way as possible, and then we were really flexible on what's the path to get us there. And then I wrote most of my book that summer because it was a pretty quiet summer. So what do you think about those companies that were like, pause everything? Is that a revealing sign that like they're not as adaptable and responsive as they might have thought they were before the pandemic? Not necessarily. 
Not necessarily. I think we went through a legitimately scary moment. I don't know that um, in our lifetimes we've experienced anything like what we experienced in spring of 2020. Like we went from like late December, oh, there's this virus in China. That's probably not a big deal. Like I traveled to Africa in the middle of February. Like I was not thinking this was a real thing. And I remember on my way home um, at the airport in Tanzania, they were already starting to wear masks and we like were laughing about it. Um, Like it just, it took a while for this to really register, right? But then when it, and I remember on March 3rd, so I live in Oregon, we shut down on March 13th. On March 3rd, I was at a product meetup. And by March 3rd, I was already starting to take it seriously. There had already been cases in Washington state, which was a little too close to home for me. And I was at a product meetup. It was an in-person event. We did not cancel it, but I stopped shaking people's hands. And people thought I was crazy. I'd be like, oh, I'm not gonna, sorry, I'm not shaking hands just out of an abundance of caution. And they'd be like, oh, are you afraid of COVID? And I'd be like, no, it's just an easy thing I can do to like hedge my bets here. 10 days later, we shut down. Most of the rest of the world started to shut down. People started working from home. We had no idea what to expect. So I think it's perfectly fine for a company to say, let's pause and take stock of where we are. Um, I don't think that's an overreaction at all. In fact, I think it's smart. Um, I think it's the companies that didn't, that were maybe more problematic, that were like, ah, there's no big deal. We're just going to keep doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, Now, for the companies where they never returned to normal, like they never found a new normal, maybe that's a sign that like, hey, you got to learn how to adapt here because the world has changed. Yeah, I guess taking that awareness of like, where are we at now? um, That's a good thing. But I know there's some companies that took months to like maybe reorganize teams around new opportunities, maybe even quarters. And there's some that I've worked with where like, it was literally like, oh my gosh, like we're all switching. It's going remote. Boom. Our backlogs are new now different. This is the most yep. important thing. Let's figure out the rest. And like they would start working on new opportunities and they, they flip pretty fast. I mean, within days, it almost seemed like some yeah. of them that I've worked with. So I think that was a sign of like, hey, this is an organization that, is very adaptable. They're ready to go. Like they'll, yep. they'll figure out a way to make it work, you know, and whatever the situation is. So I think what's I mean, more interesting is the transition back to the office, right? So the companies that sort of still have this rigid rule of even though your employees worked from home for the last 18 months, there's now this like, but we just want to go back to normal. I don't, I think that's a falsity. There is no back to normal. Like we have a new normal. And so that's where I really see companies struggling to adapt. And I've heard from more than half a dozen companies, and it might be closer to a dozen, that if they require going back to the office, they're seeing 40% turnover. And that number, 40%, has come up over and over and over again. And I do, um, in my courses, one of the icebreaker activities I do is this two-by-two grid where they have to place where they are. And one of the axes is I prefer working from home versus I prefer working in the office. And historically, when I've done this activity, everybody prefers working in the office. I just did it this morning. Not a single person was even, and, and it's a it's an axis, right? So like you can be anywhere on the spectrum. Every single person in the class was all the way on the left of I prefer to work from home. And I think this is the transition that companies are having a much harder time adapting to. Mm-hmm. I think COVID forced us to adapt, right? Like I think the March 2020 change, we didn't really have any choice. We just had to respond. 
Whereas now it's a little, we have a little more time. There's policies, there's revisions of those policies. There's some people are collecting feedback from their employees. Some people are making unilateral decisions. Um, I think this return to work is, return to work is the wrong term. We've always been working. Uh, this return to the office is like the most fascinating company culture experiment that I think I've seen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one and everyone's doing it a little different and their culture probably drives a lot of that too. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a good, that's good. We'll see what happens with a lot of companies. Maybe they can test some uh, assumptions as they do this, right. And uh, validate with their work workforce. Cause man, it's, also interesting to it's also interesting to see some of the big companies like renege on what they offered originally. Right. Like I know Google originally was like, you can work from anywhere. And now they're like, just kidding. You can pick an office, but we want you in an office. Right. Um, it's and those big companies kind of set the standard for what's acceptable in the industry. But I think what they're underestimating is that workers are realizing their power. There's mm -hmm. a lot of jobs in the tech industry. And if there's really going to be, so let's say, 20 to 40 percent turnover at these companies, um, there's going to be a lot more competition for talent. I'm excited to see what happens because I actually think this is a really positive change for our industry. One of the like people talk about how you can only be a successful product team if you're co-located. And I've actually never agreed with that um, um, philosophy because I think as long as you're, you need overlap in your working hours. So this idea of like we're going to offshore engineers and there's no overlap, that's a problem. You need to overlap in your um, working hours and you need to have the right tools that allow you to collaborate the way that you need to. Uh, but I don't think co-location is the key. And if anything we learned over the last 18 months, you can do plenty of good work from afar. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm excited to see that kind of put a nail in that coffin. Yeah. You know, if you got the things that you need, like a good internet connection, good video, good audio, right? Like we've, we've proven this now. So um, I think that you, you're right. You open up a lot of options for people and mm -hmm. people as they figure out what these options are and how to take advantage of them, right? Like, Hey, I can go live anywhere. I can, I could go. I want to live on a lake up in Northern Wisconsin. That's where we're from. Uh, you can go nice. do that. You know, like yeah. you don't have to, you don't have to live in a big city if you don't want to live in a big city. Like that's the jobs are, can be anywhere. They're very mobile. So I, I just think, think that's it's good for people, right? It's good yeah. for quality of life. And I think, yeah. Think about how much time we waste in the office. We really do. Yeah. Like, we don't work 40 hours a week. And some people in tech work way more, like are in the office way more than that. But we don't have that many productive hours. And I think what we're learning from work from home is that everybody's an adult and can work when they're most productive and then go on with the rest of their lives. I think we're going to see a ton of creativity and innovation come out of this period. Yeah. An eight hour day isn't what it has to be. You don't have to work from nine to five anymore. Like yeah. you can work a couple hours in the morning, middle day, late, if that's how you want to work. Like ideas can come anytime and you can work any you know, in multiple avenues. But the overlap, like you said, I think is really crucial. You do have to have a time where you can collaborate with people and you don't have to do this asynchronous thing. Like as long as we have an easy way to do synchronous communication, that's, yeah. that's key. Mm -hmm. Well, this was a great conversation, Teresa. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about your book. Um, is there anything at this time, but I mean, you can plug your book again if you want, but is there anything else you'd like to plug or promote to our listeners? Yeah. So the first thing I'll share is the book is available um, at bookstores around the world. It's called Continuous Discovery Habits. Um, I know that not everybody can read a book and then suddenly magically put it into practice. 
Uh, so with the release of the book, we also have a whole bunch of other resources available at producttalk.org to help you put the habits into practice. Uh, we have a membership program where you can connect with the community. We do many coaching calls as part of that. We do fireside chats with people on how they're putting the habits into practice. Um, and then we have a whole set of scores, uh, online courses to help you build skill uh, in each of the habits. So definitely check those out if you want to connect with the others as you put them into practice. Awesome. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for everyone. Cool. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.